0: the harshest of operating conditions. Large-scale investment, planning, and commitment places the offshore sector in a league all on its own, where the stories of people aren't found anywhere else. From safety to operations to new technology, we look to break down this often mystified industry and shed light into the unknown. You're listening to the
1: Oil &
2: Gas Offshore
1: Podcast
2: with your host, Andy Lash.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, the show where we are making waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we got a little bit of a different show set up. I've got multiple guests that are all going to be talking about kind of a central theme, the theme of digitalization in the maritime sector. So we have three guests. We're going to have IBM talking about their Espera platform, And how they're allowing offshore vessels and remote sites to transfer extremely large data sets without bogging down their system or having issues with the validity and reliability of their data. We're going to talk to ShipTracks and learn about how they are using the AIS system and presenting a visualization and management tool much like air traffic control for the maritime sector. Lastly, we'll catch up with Fuel Tracks, their previous guest to the show, but we'll get a quick update on how they've been doing and how their remote fuel monitoring system is being leveraged in times like today. As always, the show is sponsored by Tidewater. Tidewater owns and operates the largest fleet of offshore support vessels in the industry with over 60 years of experience supporting offshore energy exploration and production activities worldwide. Some of the guests today are actually utilized by Tidewater. They use these different services to help increase their efficiency and optimize their workforce today. Now, let's jump into the show, and we'll start off with IBM. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we do our part to make waves in the oil and gas industry. Today, we have an Very interesting topic. We are going to learn about the process and ability to accelerate offshore oil exploration using high-speed data transfer. Today, we have Richard Heitman, VP of IBM, to talk about their Aspera platform. Richard, thank you for your time. Thank you for meeting with me.
0: Hey, good afternoon. Glad to be here.
1: Absolutely. Where are you at today? I know we're, we're connecting remotely.
0: Yeah, I'm actually calling in from Emeryville, California. That's part of the East Bay up near San Francisco.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, again, thank you for your time, and we'll just jump right into it. Richard, how about just a little bit about yourself? How did you get where you are in the industry?
0: Yeah, well, I've been involved in software development for a number of years, and I joined Aspera. At the time, we were a privately held company small handful of employees that were working on trying to solve some really hard problems around data movement and really solve them fundamentally and i joined the company we as a typical bay area startup we had dogs in the office we had snacks and food and all the typical things you associate with bay area startup and then about five years ago we grew to a point where we successfully sold the company to ibm and became part of division within IBM, and really are are continuing to leverage the reach and scale of IBM to grow the business. Wonderful.
1: Was the oil and gas sector a core focus when you started out with Aspera?
0: Actually, it, it wasn't. The technology was originally invented in 2005, and the early adopters were primarily media and entertainment companies, And they were going through a major industry transformation from analog tape to digital file formats. And they were also experiencing tremendous growth in file sizes as as we've all seen the evolution from standard def to high def to UHD, 4K, 8K. And so this massive growth in file sizes and the need that industry has to collaborate where maybe I'm shooting a major motion picture in one location of the world but I have post-production and special effects houses in another part of the world, really a need to move these very, very large files. However, it is more recently that we're seeing many, many industries such as oil and gas really go through the similar major technical transformations as they see the same kind of explosion in data. And if you think about oil and gas, the high precision instruments that are used to assess the quality of a, of a potential drilling site generate a tremendous amount of data, and that data needs to be moved from these remote locations into high-performance computing centers where it can be analyzed and and processed.
1: So is the, the Aspera software, is that specific to wired connections, wireless connections? I mean, is this onshore, offshore? What are the different application uses there?
0: Yeah, we're actually completely agnostic from the infrastructure, the network, and the data. Essentially what what the software does is it's able to detect how much network bandwidth you have. And traditional software protocols based on TCP, such as FTP or HTTP that are used to move data over a wired connection or a wireless connection have a congestion avoidance algorithm which causes it to slow down the rate at which it's transferring data as the distance increases, as measured by round-trip time and latency. And so what our software does is it really overcomes this limitation. We are able to recognize how much bandwidth you have on the network, immediately ramp to fill it, transfer data at the maximum possible speed allowed by your infrastructure, and then complete that transfer in a fraction of the time.
1: So if I understand it correctly, it's a throttle control? For uploads and downloads, I mean, is that an overly simplified explanation? Or
0: yeah, Well, you do have the ability to control how much bandwidth you use. But let's, let's use some practical examples. Let's say that at home, you may have a 20 megabit per second connection for upload. And let's say that you're uploading from your house to a website that's located on the other side of the country, from Emeryville to New York. So there's a certain amount of latency on that network, which will cause TCP to slow down. And instead of being able to use all of the 20 megabit per second throughput that you have, you might only be able to use 10 or about half of that. And the interesting thing is as you add more bandwidth, you still can only send at 10 megabits per second. So if you had a full gig pipe, you're now really only using a fraction and you're overpaying for that. Along comes aspera, and what we do is we recognize that you have the full twenty or a hundred or or a gig or even ten gig, and so we just are able to fully utilize the network pipe that's available to us when we're transferring and transfer at the maximum possible speed
1: Awesome. that is extremely interesting i'm it's, it's well over my head on exactly what's going on there, but I do get the picture it it does help and so when we look at two Kind of like you said, with media files, video, and audio files from the entertainment sector, oil and gas, that information, how was it transferred before? I mean, we've been getting that data for quite some time now.
0: Yeah, great question. So first of all, if you transfer using some of these legacy software technologies, it would get there. It would just take a lot longer and the further the distance is between the source and the destination, the longer it would take. So this is especially prevalent when you're trying to move data from maybe some remote field wells to your main data center, or in this case, offshore, where you might have your boats are are well offshore and they now have to rely on a, a satellite connection, which can be both slow and expensive. And then there's always the physical transport And so literally in the movie industry, they would take dailies, they would copy them to a hard disk, and then they would have somebody hop on a plane with a case with the hard disk and the dailies, fly to the studio and then load them up. And then eventually some movies where maybe they weren't quite so worried about having the shots fall into the wrong hands, they could be sent with UPS or FedEx. But FedEx really is not a network protocol. And so <laughs> most of those sort of physical transport mechanisms have now been replaced by our software. Interesting enough, on, for the offshore use cases, much of the data was actually transported via helicopter.
1: Yeah, I think I've seen different movies and maybe videos about it and different solutions. I think there's a device called a Snowball right? That's kind of like the black box of many offshore wells is kind of that big data transfer device.
0: Yeah, there's I think there's a snowball, which is a physical device that you can copy your data to and then ship. And then I think there's a bigger one, which is a snowmobile, which is actually they back (laughs) an entire truck up and you load it with all of your computers that have all your data and then just literally drive it across country to the data center. Wow,
1: yeah, <laughs> that does not seem efficient or cost-effective by any means.
0: Yeah, and it's also, you're exposing your data to loss if it gets damaged in transit, and also you're exposing your data to theft, whereas our transfer that happens even over commodity internet, the data can be encrypted over the wire, so it's protected during the transfer, and can also be encrypted at rest, so it's protected once it lands at the destination.
1: And that was one of my next questions was, is this, you know, compressing the data where you might end up with compression loss or degradation through the transfer? Or are you getting full fledged 100%, you know, equivalent data on both ends?
0: Yeah, compression certainly can provide some relief in some cases. And, you know, nobody can break the laws of physics. So if you're using common transport like TCP to move data, you can't send any more data through the pipe that the network allows. But you can increase the throughput by compressing the data, you send fewer bits over the pipe, and then you uncompress it on the other side. Well, first of all, that introduces an overhead and, and a delay because you have to take the time to compress it to begin with. There's another delay on the other side where the transfer is complete, But you still can't have access to the data because it needs to be uncompressed. And then it only works for data that is compressible, where there's a lot of redundancy in the file itself. And the technology, the compression technology, actually can get the file size down from, say, 100% down to maybe 70%. In our case, we don't have that initial overhead of the compression. We don't have the delay on the decompression, on the uncompression on the other side. And then we also trans, because we can transfer the entire file, our benefit exists also for files where there might not be much, much actual reduction in the file size from the compression.
1: So I could see the speed really being a benefit to things like remote drilling and applications like that, where, I mean, some of these ships are being steered from a on-land center, and that data's gotta be fast to be able to make that, that bit move accurately. Is that a big part of what you're dealing with day to day?
0: Yeah, the, I mean, we spend a lot of time on the technology and it does provide some incredible performance, security and reliability benefits, but it really is, it's really the business that is the, gets the most value out of the technology. If you think about a major motion picture, where every day that they go beyond their deadline in a post-production, it's costing them money, and then they have a fixed budget. So the faster they can move the videos between the studios and the special effects houses, the shorter they can make that post-production process, and the sooner they can get that movie into the theaters, the bigger the ROI. And the same thing on remote drilling. The fact that you're, they're using technologies to improve the accuracy of where they place that bit, and then there's an improvement in the turnaround time from capturing that data to when it's analyzed and then when it's made available to the, the scientists that need to then act on that data.
1: For the listener that is hearing us talk about this today, what would be the big hurdles for them to de- deploy something like this within their organization?
0: Well, our technology is available as a full software as a service, so it's currently running on IBM Cloud. There's a a trial that people can sign up for, 30-day trial, transfer up to 100 gigabytes, and there really is no deployment because you just sign up and you can leverage all of the software and the infrastructure that we're running in the IBM Cloud. And then for clients who actually want to deploy this in their data center, then we support bare metal, virtual machines, every possible flavor of, of Linux. And so there's many, many options for clients that want to take advantage of our technology. We also have client applications that run on Windows and Mac. We have mobile applications. We have some web applications that make it very, very easy to upload, download, and, and send these files to a place or to a person.
1: As we've been learning through this, it's a very interesting solution and software that you guys are, have developed and deployed. Along that path, what are some of the popular myths or misunderstandings that you've had to combat with?
0: Yeah, there's there's really three myths that we face sort of on a regular day-to-day basis. And the first one is somebody in IT who they believe they don't need Aspera because they've allocated such a large amount of network bandwidth that, that they don't need us. And the reality is that when there is latency and packet loss on the network, those companies are not utilizing all of that bandwidth. So they're really paying for bandwidth that's, that they're not using, very inefficient. Once we show them, and we can demonstrate this, that the incredible performance gains that they can achieve with our software, the next myth is that because we go so fast that we literally hog the pipe, in other words, we use all the bandwidth and no other business traffic can get through. Well, we actually have a policy that you can set, which is fair, and our software will respect any other traffic on the network. It can be voice over IP, it can be email, it can be any other network traffic, and we will respect that, make sure that those have the proper level of service that you define and then when some of that bandwidth frees up, we'll immediately reclaim it to, again, transfer at the maximum possible speed. And then the, the third myth is that since we transfer on the open internet, we're not secure. And the reality is that we do have encryption over the wire. We have encryption at rest, and we have both client-side secrets and server-side secrets. So it's very easy for clients to use our software and ensure that their data is protected.
1: Awesome. Rod spectrum of use cases and different applications for the software, I think that's maybe not something that many people would think we they would need, right? This is going to be somebody, like you said, kind of handling the IT and, and managing bandwidth and, and communications within it. But the end user is the one that's going to really see the benefit, right? They're going to experience that latency and the issues through their operations,
0: Yeah. And in fact, oftentimes it's the business side of the house that comes to us looking for help because they're the ones who are the most impacted. And it can be anybody in retail that has to move a lot of data from maybe their retail stores to their data center. Obviously, we've talked about oil and gas. It's the folks that are on the hook to produce business results who can most benefit by implementing the software to improve the the uh, transfer times and ensure that the business can move at a speed that's really dictated by the business rather than limited by their network.
1: Well, hopefully we've opened some eyes to, to this new solution and it, people listening have, have maybe clued onto this being something that they need in their day-to-day operations. How could anybody listening learn more about Aspera? what IBM has to offer there.
0: Yeah, just go to, we have a lot of information available on the IBM website and just navigate to ibm.com slash cloud Aspera. You can learn about our software as a service and sign up for a trial.
1: Fantastic. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover today? No, that's it. Thanks so much for
0: having me. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast. Thank you for listening in. Today, we have Charles Riley with ShipTracks. Charles, how are you doing today?
2: Doing great, Andy. I appreciate it. How are you?
1: I'm doing really well. Where are you located right now? Of course, we're doing this through a remote social distancing stream right now, right? (laughs) That's correct.
2: I am in my office in the Canal Place Towers, looking at the Mississippi River in New
1: Orleans right now. How are things uh, down there in New Orleans right now with, with everything going on? It's
2: quiet, eerie quiet, very easy to drive around, and almost nobody on the streets. It's, it's, I'm looking at the French Quarter outside my window, and to be honest with you, I've never seen it so quiet.
1: Yeah, it is. It's a good description there, eerily quiet. I... I had to get my. I'm in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, at my house, and yesterday I had to go. I had to get my license fixed. I just moved up here to Oklahoma a few months ago, and I had to get my license updated. And you know, normally that's like the most dreaded place to go to the tag agency. Here, I walked in. There was not a soul in sight. I walked in. I paid him my twenty bucks or whatever, and I walked right out. I. They had gloves and masks on to do it, but uh, well we got it done and I didn't have to wait. No, uh, it's quick service if you really have to go out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad we are connecting for this. I really look forward to talking to you. And you know, just a little backstory. I know I kind of learned about ship tracks through the workboat show a few months ago now, there in New Orleans, right? That's correct we were there with a partner company of ours helm connect which
2: is a vessel management system that services a lot of the inland marine market and the offshore oil and gas market as well
1: awesome well and, and what we're talking today of course is your company ship tracks and learning about just that right vessel tracking and global positioning of those those vessels around the world right
2: it is. We kind of describe it in, at the first glance as air traffic control for marine vessels. People that aren't in the business get it when you describe it that way, but everybody in the business knows exactly what AIS vessel tracking and ship tracks is because they use it and live, live and breathe by it because of, without knowing where your vessels and your supporting vessels are, it's hard to efficiently operate anything.
1: Absolutely. And that is something I really look forward to to learning a lot about here. Let's start with with just a little bit about yourself, Charles. How how did you get where you are today?
2: It's an interesting question. I am an entrepreneur and started out really I wanted to go blue water fishing. And I started looking for blue water fishing charts and guidance because in this in the Gulf you have to run anywhere from eighty forty to eighty or a hundred miles offshore to start fishing for Marlin and tuna and so on. And so it's a big run. You burn a lot of fuel. And I was looking for information to help me figure out where to start. That's how I got into the business and I was working with a company that did that. I helped them get that off the ground and did a business plan for them. They later on went out of business. I took that business plan and went into the blue water fish forecasting business. And from there, I hired an oceanographer from the Navy who was quite a, a sharp lady. And then we hired a PhD scientist to work on a project for the Navy and started doing over-the-horizon radar, started integrating sea surface temperature with surface data, drifter buoys, over-the-horizon measurements of ocean currents. And the company grew into basically an environmental and data analysis company over the years and then we started working with surveillance radar with Raytheon as a, on some projects out of QS, and later on decided to, after nine eleven, to basically commercialize an industrial, I mean, a military based tracking system. In developing that radar, the, a new technology called AIS came out, and that we started using that to validate our radar targets. And it was shortly after that time that Hurricane Katrina came along, changed the course of everything. So when Katrina hit, we were in past Christian, Mississippi, and lost all of our code and our backups to our code and our, basically our ability to do business in the oceanographic world for a period of time, we couldn't produce products. And that's when I decided to refocus and start working with this new technology
1: called AIS. Now, and that is that is a very interesting story. You've gone many different directions and, you know, still come out ahead, which is really awesome to hear. But AIS, that's Automatic Identification System, right?
2: That's correct. It's a, it's a beacon, if you will, that's interfaced with SHIP GPS and gyros, compass, and other SHIP electronics. It basically is transmitting every few seconds the vessel's position, name, and speed, heading, rate of return, that sort of stuff is is developed as a collision avoidance process from vessel to vessel.
1: And is that on, I know it's mandated for a lot of vessels, right? But is it a size classification or what makes the distinction on who has to have that device or system on board?
2: It used to be 300 tons or more or passenger vessels over a certain limit, or vessels going through controlled spaces like New Orleans and Houston, they've tightened that up just a little bit, I think, and pretty much every commercial vessel out there has it on it now. Pilot boats have it, tugboats have it, bunker vessels have it. Every, Just about everybody that's out there operating has it because it's such a huge safety factor. You can see the vessel around the bend. In the old days you had a radar. So until that both vessels rounded a bend in the river, you couldn't see each other. You were having to talk to each other. Now you know exactly who's coming up way in advance.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but the AIS is also kind of like the it's the emergency button on board, right? Like if a vessel starts to have an issue or starts to get in trouble, that is the the primary, you know, ah, crap button of sorts, right?
2: Not, and I apologize, but I can't validate that. I don't know that for sure, to be honest with you. Okay. I don't think they have like SOS button on there where an aircraft has a a squat code or something that says, hey, I'm in trouble. I think when these vessels get in trouble, they're busy doing what they do, but that keeps transmitting all the time to let people know where they are.
1: Gotcha. Well, it's and it's... Correct or not. It's still extremely vital to the maritime industry. Uh, I mean, with, without
2: like- a doubt. And in the grand scheme of things, yes, people, when they are, say, threatened or hijacked or, that, or adrift, they put those messages into the AIS and transmit to people that they've lost engine power or that they've been hijacked or that sort of stuff. So in a sense, it is an emergency broadcast, but I don't think there's like an SOS button on the unit itself.
1: Gotcha. Now, so how does Shiptracks support that system or support the industry through that system? Where does Shiptracks fit in there?
2: Well, we're what I would call a professional AIS service. You can go online and find a vessel for free if you're just trying to find one vessel. Just like you can go online and follow your wife's flight to the airport so you know what time to pick her up. But you can't go online and run an airport with a with a free service and you can't go online and run a company that needs coordination with a free service. If you can imagine a oil company, for example, has fleets of vessels that are vetted for charter. They have fleets of vessels that they have on spot charter. They have long term fleets and then they have their own vessels that they own they have fleets of bunker company you know bunker companies that they do business with and when you add a new vessel to say a spot charter you don't really want to have to call all 300 people in the company that might support that vessel or monitor that vessel or do production for that vessel so with ship tracks we have what we call team share and that allows the users all around the world to see the same fleets within ship track. So it's a coordination tool, if you will. Somebody makes a note about the vessel, everybody sees it. Somebody you know, has the authority to add new vessels to the fleet, everybody sees that. You know, If you have an incident where there's a piracy attack and the security manager wants to know where all of the vessels in the company are so that he can make sure they're safe, he logs on. The voyage managers have added those vessels to their fleets and he can see them
1: right away. Does... For that to be as robust as it is, and, and it is, I played with at the workboat show and I've of course gone through your website. It's it's super interesting to look at and watch the ships all over the world. But for like the scenario you just you just gave where you know Company X adds a vessel to their to their fleet on a spot contract or something just for a short period of time, does that other contractor have to use ship tracks or is it just on one side, they can be using the service and, you know, and still the,
2: have... So when you say the other contractor, if you're talking about the spot charter guy, no, they don't have to use ship Tracks. We're tracking all of the vessels out there, and but our customer may only be interested in one or 300 of them, but the other users within the company have to be using ship Tracks. The... They have to be an authorized user. They have to be authorized to see that fleet of vessels. Each, each individual logon has a, a whole host of permissions when they log into the system that dictates what they can edit, what they see, what information they have access to. We do customizations for entire companies where we integrate with their internal databases and are able to attach their internal proprietary information to the vessels they're looking at the users, each user within the company has to have access to the ShipTrax system for them to be able to see those company internal changes.
1: So as long as the vessel has the AIS on board, ShipTrax can report on that vessel or from the info that's generated from that vessel. That That's correct. Okay. And then the Ship tracks really adds the visualization and the tracking and the reporting features that make life much more efficient and you know easier for whoever's tracking those vessels right if you you know you
2: can use it historically for verifying demurrage costs. you can measure dock utilization from historic data or you can use it in real time, to see who is where and who's who's doing what. You know, Think about when a ship pulls into a refinery. There's a lot of people that have to do things to make that vessel efficient in arrival and departure and, and unloading. So when a ship goes under the Golden Gate Bridge, people at the Chevron refinery start doing things. They have to hook up the, the lines. They have to tie the vessel. They have to Production revolves around it, that the pumping processes, everything revolves around the arrival and departure of that ship. So it saves a lot of time and money by everybody being able to see that picture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, in my mind, and I, I probably make this reference too often on the show, but, you know, I deal with trucks all day, right? I actually work in our logistics group. So I'm managing truckloads of gasoline and diesel and, you know, all kinds of different products all over the country. And, the ability to find those assets and see where they are and see where they're going in real time is I mean it's everything I mean it comes down to everything and this is it's got to be the same for the maritime world and ship checks solves that
2: it is I use the the airline example or the all the time but another example that I use is when I'm you know talking to a somebody that doesn't know anything about it or maybe one of, you know, one of my friends or somebody at a gathering and they said, well, explain to me what you do." I said, well, it's just, it's kind of like UPS bringing you a new pair of shoes and they're going to put them out on your porch. And you're worried about somebody in the neighborhood, maybe taking your package with your new Prada shoes in it. You know that UPS is out for delivery that day, but you don't know what time they're coming with right. this. It would be like being able to watch the UPS truck drive around the block and know that he's going to be at your house in about 12 and a half minutes and you could leave your office and run down and meet the ups truck that would be much better and safer for you and it's the same way with all these vessels moving around you know you've got to schedule these tugs and schedule the pilots and schedule the line handlers and everything else that's what we do we give it to the minute efficiency if you will
1: awesome very very interesting and how that brought something to mind, something I've actually been thinking about off and on for a while is, you know, I hear these comments of dark ships or, you know, ships that I guess turn off the AIS to kind of go unmasked. Is that right?
2: That's a very real scenario. It is a lot of times vessels going into less industrial com- countries, not necessarily much in Europe or in the U.S., but vessels going into Africa to fuel up, sometimes the ports will ask them to turn off their AIS. I've seen this happen on a number of occasions. There's a lot of trading that goes on, a lot of commodity following that goes on by tracking these vessels. You, you know where they load, you have a pretty good idea what's on the vessel. So I've, I've seen firsthand vessels turning their AIS off while they're making transit across the ocean and then turning it back on, it's kind of to surprise the market and keep the competition. That is much rarer than you think. As a whole, the AIS system is voluntary. not It's not voluntary, it's mandated, but it's it's a participated-in system without question as far as one vessel meeting another, and you don't have your AIS on, somebody's going to call you out on it. A tanker coming into the U.S. is not going to turn their AIS off. But yeah, it does happen and it happens more than you think, but it's it's happening less and less as well too, because there's so much visibility on the entire fleet as it moves around now.
1: And I would assume ship tracks can kind of trigger those exact points that they turned it off here and they turned it back on here and you can kind of. Guess the distance or the the path between there, right?
2: You can. There there's time and distance calculations that are pretty easy to monitor. One of the things that that we do to look for what sometimes what is dirty data or bad data. Sometimes you have two vessels with the same ID number, and it looks like they're hopping back and forth from China to the U.S. Gulf, you know, <laughs> in, in a matter of minutes. So you have to put yeah. you know, filters in for that and filters in for the ID process. It's not a, not a hundred percent clean, but yeah, you can look for it. And it, but there's times when vessels, you don't see them for two or three days when they're crossing the ocean and maybe they have a weak or a dirty antenna connection. They're not putting out a lot of power and the satellites don't pick them up. So you have to use logic to say, could that vessel have really traveled that far that quickly? Well, so yes, and there's a consistent track before and a consistent track after. You can tie those two together pretty reliably.
1: With everything, I mean, we've had a lot of examples about, you know, the oil and gas industry specifically and how this really fits into a lot of the day-to-day operations there. What are the other industries or fields within maritime that are, are using ship tracks and really maybe leveraging the AIS system?
2: We have a lot of customers in the brown water market you know, they all know where their vessel is, but they need to know who's at the locks that they're going to. They need to know if there's somebody at the dock, but they want to know how much traffic is coming down the river, for example. During times of inclement weather, they can look and see. You have these, what I call them, open water crossings along the ICW and where they actually go out into the Mississippi Sound for a period of time, and, and it can be rough for an inland barge. So they they watch and see if the other barges are crossing or or tugs are are making that crossing. If they are, they feel a little better about it. If they're not, it's it's kind of a a verification of conditions, if you will. So a lot of groundwater clients. And then we're also pretty uh, successful with the tug harbor docking operations. In fact, you know, we're integrating with other systems to support that. You know, there's management systems for scheduling the dockings and the dock spaces. And the company you got to think about. There's a lot of billing processes that go into handling all these different ships come into the into the country and want you to provide a service for them. So you have to work with the agents and everything else. And we kind of integrate with those vessel management and docking systems to pick where all the vessels that are coming in are and that they have orders for are or located, so they again can do their scheduling. So. If the other thing that we do biz, we do a lot of business with is the major construction companies around the world. They want to know where their products are for scheduling purposes. They, you know, they'd be surprised, but Bechtel is a big customer of ours and they have multiple vessels, multiple ships bringing tons and tons of, you know, construction materials and components in for big refinery projects. And it is logistically, it makes a big difference for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A broad, you know, spectrum of of users and industries i mean still to me even doing the show for i don't know i think i've done near 20 episodes now talking to everybody and all the researchers you know how much maritime and shipping and everything how much it integrates to just everybody's lives without really even knowing it
2: the general public doesn't realize how much it affects them but it is it's the you know i've heard numbers that 90 percent of everything that that we consume and use has at one point or in one form or another been on board a ship or a water transit.
1: Yeah, I would have, I've heard similar numbers and I would completely agree. It sounds very accurate. When you're looking and and you have companies that, you know, like you're at the Workboat Show there in New Orleans and you're talking to new customers, what are the things that a new customer needs to contemplate when they are thinking about ship tracks or you know, another company in that field?
2: Well, you know, our first question that we ask is, what do you need? What are you trying to accomplish? What problem do you have that we can solve for you? And nine times out of 10, it is a shared information situation where they're wanting to see the same picture. They want to know what's going on in Houston and London and Singapore all at the same time you may want to dispatch from a central location and you need the capacity. And that's where ship tracks itself to basically separate each division that still share the common picture among all the users there. So you can have three fleets, for example, one fleet of tugboats for Seattle, one fleet for San Francisco and one fleet for LA. And when you're, if one di- if the dispatcher is sitting in one location, he can save his settings and his preferences to show those vessels when he logs on. Create quick views so that he can instantly jump from one environment to another, and still have a, a clear picture of what's
1: going on. Awesome, and it's it's all web based, right? So, like, if new customer comes on, it's. It's not like they need to set much stuff up. There's no hardware, there's no different things. I mean,
2: it's 100% web-based. In fact, when we started doing this originally, we were one of the we were PC-based. We started with a very large Java package and built the system on that. And as time went on, we it got harder and harder for us to install it on someone's computer for them to do a demo as the firewall world, you know, Realize, hey, we can't just let everybody come in and do this. Now it's impossible to install something on somebody's computer. So we migrated to the web-based platform. You know, late in the game, to be honest with you, I think we shut down our PC-based system about four years ago, three and a half to four years ago. And our customers loved it because it did everything they wanted. But we couldn't. It was hard to get new customers, and we we started rebuilding the web-based system to do everything that the the PC-based could and and I'm glad to say that we're releasing what we call ShipTracks 2020 this month. That is our final version of everything the PC-based system could do, and then a whole lot more. To be honest with you, the system's grown and changed dramatically over the years. But it is we're calling our our web-based system complete at this point. Of course, we'll continue to always add new features and upgrade and improve wherever possible that we're literally releasing what we would call our complete ship tracks 2020 this month. I'm very excited about it.
1: Awesome. Well, congratulations to you guys. I'm sure a lot of hard work went into that and it's always nice to have those new projects and accomplishments released. So I hope everything is well received.
2: I hope so too. I appreciate
1: that. That brings just kind of a thought to mind. I didn't have it on any of my little rough draft questions I sent you or anything like that, but do you see anything changing anything on the future of the AIS? You know, I mean is there developments there or is that just kind of that is what it is and it's going to stay that way for a while?
2: I think that it two things. One they're they're going to make some technical changes. The system was designed originally as collision avoidance and now it is has migrated to to basically a operational environment for the world of maritime. So they're making technical changes but I think that'll be slow and calculated because there's so much of an investment in the system. I think they're they're creating some channels that are optimized better for satellite communication. That, you know, we we use terrestrial and satellite collection processes, and the system was designed to talk from boat to boat, not from vessel to space. But it still works fairly efficiently, and that technology has been growing. But Where I really see AIS and vessel tracking becoming important is in some of the things we're working on in in modeling the data, in understanding modernizing traffic patterns everywhere that people have used tracking to, to, and you can see this in trucks most likely, everywhere that people have used tracking processes to look for improvements. They've seen very good returns on their investment for optimization and how they place boats, how they schedule vessels, how they dispatch. We're we're working with processes now to calculate when vessels need to be dispatched or how efficient they were when they were dispatched, whether or not they were running at an optimum fuel rate for fuel savings when they're trying to get set up to dock a tug, I mean to dock a ship. We're also automating those processes for tracking I think what you'll see with AIS is the data itself, the technology will not change that much, but the application of that technology is in what I would call a very high state of modernization. We're literally working with predictive technologies and AI to calculate what has happened and compare that to what is happening versus what is going to happen in the future.
1: Awesome, That is... Yeah, I mean, the whole world's kind of doing that on a lot of fronts, but I know the maritime sector as a whole is is usually a little more reluctant to change, a little more, you know, it's not broke so why try to fix it kind of thought on some of this stuff, but that sounds real interesting and and some great efficiency gains and business benefits on the on the short horizon. Right. What are Go well, ahead.
2: I was just going to agree with you. I think it, I think it's really the next frontier
1: in the maritime industry. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. With all that, what are some of the do you run across popular myths or misunderstandings about the AIS or, or about ship tracks?
2: No, not unless you're trying to buy insurance and then they <laughs> then they think you're steering satellites down from space or something. But uh, <laughs> no, not many myths, to be honest with you, or misunderstanding. It's, it's a very common process now. It's a very well known process. People understand it. But when I first started doing this, I was running around to different tug companies and different marine operators trying to put up AIS receiving sites and you know people looked at me like I was big brother trying to spy on them because they didn't want everybody to know where their vessels were located. They did the industry didn't want to, to have everybody be able to sit at their desk and see what they were doing. It was in the beginning it was very if you will, mis- you know, mysterious. People didn't trust the whole process. They they felt like big brother was watching them so to speak. But as at this point, it's a mature process and people Know that everything they're doing is being watched, followed, and recorded from an AIS standpoint.
1: Yeah. Well, we can thank Amazon for people helping to adopt that <laughs> service. Everybody loves watching the packages been shipped, packages right. in transit, Packages yeah. was delivered. You know, like we all expect that on everything that we do now and not just our own personal goods and deliveries. I think we've covered a lot. I mean, I've learned a lot about ship tracks. I mean, it, the analogies you've given and the scenarios i mean it makes a lot of sense you know that air traffic control visualization of of your assets around the world where they're going where they've been all of that uh, functionality and versatility could be a huge asset for probably a lot of people listening to this show so thank you very much for helping us learn about that today
2: it's my pleasure i mean we're we're proud of what we're doing we we play a a role in the industry, and glad to be able to tell people about it. Thank you for having us.
1: yeah, you're welcome. Anything we didn't touch on that you, that you wanted to get out?
2: I don't think so. I think you know I could talk about it forever and talk about ship truck
1: <laughs>
2: to be honest with you, I think you covered everything that is applicable
1: awesome, well, you have passion for what you're doing and for your company and that shows, and it's awesome. I wish everybody had that all all the same for what they do, but Thank you again. And everybody, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore Podcast, where we are making waves in the offshore sector. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you, Andy. Given the show topic that's come together here, a topic of digitalization and remote monitoring in the maritime sector, I thought of a previous guest to the podcast, Victoria Cantu from FuelTracks. So I reached out to Victoria to get an update on Fuel Tracks and get an update on how their services are being utilized in times like today, times of remote access, remote work, working from home, shelter in place, times when access to the field, access to those key parts of our business might be restricted. So let's go to Victoria and hear what she had to say.
3: Hey, Andy. Well, first, just thank you so much for inviting me back out to the show for this update. And I want to start out by saying how incredibly grateful I am that in a time like this, that I do have the capability of being able to work remotely. And I recognize that not everybody, especially people like the crew that are on board vessels that FuelTrack serves globally, they may not have the capability of being able to work from home, right? Because they're on board. So I'm really proud that FuelTracks can be a part of the network that is giving direct visibility and transparency to the work that these crew members are still out there doing as part of their day-to-day jobs. And you're definitely right. Times like these show the need for remote access with systems like ours. So what we're doing is we're continuing to focus on maintaining our global infrastructure and our 99% global uptime. So that during all of this uncertainty, there is one thing that we hope that our crews and their management can be rest assured of is that they will be able to receive regular 15 minute updates of their live vessel locations and their field tracking activities from wherever they are anywhere in the world. And the other thing that we're continuing to focus on is to prepare our data analytics capabilities for the cost savings and optimizations needs around fuel that we predict are going to emerge once all of this settles. If there's one thing that I think we can all really agree on is that, you know... On the other side of this, there is going to be a different view on global operations. And so what we're doing is we're continuing to gear up to be able to serve that need as companies start planning for that future ahead. And really, in times of crisis, it's the people who come out of the other end, those are the people that will tell you now is the best time to act in planning for that future. So we have a team ready that's still continuing to be leading remote monitoring services for the maritime industry in both offshore oil and gas and you know other areas of maritime that that we're continuing to serve that are still continuing to be in operation so you know thank you Andy again for allowing me for being able to provide this update and really my thoughts and my heart are going out to everybody that may be affected by the virus outbreak around the world.
4: Hey, everybody, Alex here with the events on deck for the next month. We have some exciting things coming up two happy hours, one in Pittsburgh and one in Denver. So the first one will be happening on March 22nd at Bubba's Gourmet Burgers and Beer. This event will be from four to seven and will feature a live recording of oil and gas this week with Jake Corley and Mark LaCour. So be sure to check that out. You can sign up via our social medias. We have an Eventbrite sign up and should be good to go from there. The next event will be a happy hour in Denver at Liberty Oil Field Services on April 2nd. Once again, check our social medias for the Eventbrite sign up and sign up there. As some of our social media followers may know, we are headed to Aberdeen, Scotland the first week of March in a couple days, actually, for DokuruCon, creating high impact sales and energy. Dokuru is excited to launch its very first sales development conference and OGN's Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. So we're really excited to be joining that. The Leaders in Industry Luncheon is on March 11th at the Petroleum Club of Houston. Port of the Future is happening on March 10th and 11th in Houston. Your registration to the Port of The Future Conference also allows you access to exclusive events, including TSA Security and Terrorism, Research Showcase, and many more. So be sure to view the agenda and see what they are offering. The Houston Energy Breakfast will be on March 20th at the Norris Conference Center in Houston. The API Energy Houston 3-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th. This event is filling up very quickly, so make sure to get a team in as soon as possible. The BP Energy Outlook 2020 edition will be on April 21st. It's happening online. And this event is about transitions that will take place to a low-carbon energy system. That's all for this month, everybody. Hope you guys have a good month and check back in next month to see what events we're having. Thanks.
0: Tune in next week for another episode of the Oil & Gas Offshore podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasoffshore.com.